Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, May 4th, 2012. This week, episode 246 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes here with me in the studio and assisting at the controls is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender. Good afternoon. The Z-Man is not going to be able to join us this week, but he'll be back next week in the saddle with us here. Today's segments include an interview with IAQ man, Mr. Bob Krell. We're hoping to see Bob on the line here any minute. And, uh, of course, we'll have our halftime, thank our sponsors. We'll go to the roundup. We'll bring in our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanclenfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, let's uh, go to the IAQ Radio trivia question for today. Oh, you know what? Before we do, I also want to make sure we uh, thank uh, the IAQ Training Institute. Go to iaqtraining.com for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Those of you that have joined us before know you just... Follow the link from the IAQ Radio website that says go to the show or follow the link on your show invitation. You can always listen live or download shows later. You can stream them right from the iaqradio.com website or you can get shows later from down, download from iTunes. All right, let's move over to today's IAQ Radio trivia question. We're uh, trying to work on getting Bob in here on the line, but uh, Val's going to take care of that, and we're going to skip the music for today. You can win a cool prize by competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question. 
Submitting your answer is easy. You can either email it to czlotnik, Z-L-O-T-N-I-K, at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text it in via your computer. You can also send it today to joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Congratulations to last week's winner, Andy Krasowski from Concast Metal Products. He answered last week's trivia question, and that was that polar bears would eat penguins if they could, but they can't because they live on the opposite sides of our planet. Polar bears are in the north and penguins are in the south. This week's IAQ Radio trivia question has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association. To learn more about Triska, visit their website at www.trsca.org. Now, for this week's trivia question, in the process of galvanizing, named after the Italian scientist Luigi Galvani, what material is used to protect steel sheet metal from rusting? Okay, so you can text in your question now, your answer now, or you can email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Val has left the room for a minute. She's trying to make sure we get our guest logged in. We're having a little trouble, but while we uh, get Bob on the line here, I want to do a little introduction of Mr. Krell. Bob Krell, let's see here. i got to find my, my intro. Val, did you help him get in there? There we go. IAQ guest one. All right. Very good. Very good. We got the music? Play a little music for Mr. Krell. It's cold in here. Why? Because the heating's not on. Why? Because the ducts are dirty. <laughs> That's what I was The saying. ducks are dirty. They're dirty. The, the ducks. I was told if we turned on the heating, there would be a fire, and we have to wait. All of the ducks are dirty. It's like... Is that what you want? Oh. It's like your nose. Let me try this again. <laughs> All of the ducks are dirty. Why are the ducks dirty? Ducts. <laughs> All right, let's go to uh, Bob. IAQ Technologies, which is Bob's company, was formed in 1990. Bob Krell is the CEO and president of IAQ Technologies out of Syracuse, New York. They provide indoor environmental consulting, training, and building performance services for a wide range of clients. The IAQ man, Bob Krell, has been an industry fixture for over 25 years and recently has been making quite a splash through, through the social media uh, mediums. Bob writes the Great Indoors blog, he moderates the Great Indoors LinkedIn group, and he answers questions through Ask IAQ Man. In addition to these resources, he has added a Facebook page, a Twitter feed, and has some other plans in development. We're going to learn more about that in a moment, but you can also learn more at www.iaq.net. Let's see if we got Bob. Hello, Bob. Do we have you on the line? We do. Hey, Joe. All right. right, Bob, welcome. Sometimes we have these little technical glitches, Bob, but we finally got it. We got you set. Hey, uh, Bob, you've been, you know, around for 25 years, and you were really, when I first started really getting involved in indoor air quality issues, this was back in, like, the early 2000 era, you were around a lot of uh, conferences and things of that nature. Then it kind of you know, I didn't see you around as much, and then lately I've seen you back again. Can you give us a little overview of what you've been doing the last, you know, 15 years or so? 
Well, you know, I mean, actually, I've been doing the same thing I've always been doing. Uh, lots of consulting, uh, lots of field work uh, for you know a variety of clients around the country. Um, I got less involved with the uh, industry trade association uh, business. You know, it, back in the '90s, I spent that whole decade uh, very heavily involved with the National Air Duct Cleaners, and uh, you know, then after that, the uh, AMIQ with their uh, you know when they debuted the CMRS program. So I did a lot with groups up until that period of time, did a lot of uh, speaking at industry conferences. And really, you know, once I hit like about 2003 or so, I really started dialing that down a little bit, maybe 2004. So you saw a lot less of me out there. There's also less conferences there used to be, too. You, know, you have to acknowledge that. You know, Back in the 90s, there were conferences almost every month. And what, you know, you started way back in the 90s, which was very early on for indoor air quality issues. What got you started in that business? I, God knows. I mean, it's just like it wasn't really, it wasn't a plan, you know, coming out of high school and going to college and saying, I'm going to become an IAQ guy. That was, I, in fact, I hated biology, which is kind of funny. Um, it just was uh, just a convoluted path that got me here. I started with a firm back in 1986, uh, uh, opening their IAQ division and air duct cleaning. So that's kind of what got me, I started at that point and um, formed my company, IAQ Technologies, uh, back in 1990. And, here we are 25-some years later. You know, I've noticed lately, and I didn't, you know, we, we always send a little list of questions. I didn't get to send you this one, but I, I'm guessing you won't mind talking a little bit about this. And that is that you've been, lately you seem to be much more involved with the social media. And it looks like you have basically a, a game plan for really hitting all the different social media outlets. Can you tell us a little bit about why you're doing that or, you know, what your thoughts are with respect to this whole social media, um, I guess, wave? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll give you my, my 10,000-foot overview. I mean, I definitely think that's the way of the future. There's no question. You know, I mean, from a mar business marketing standpoint, you know, the Yellow Pages are pretty much dying Print media is not really going to be around that much longer, you know, at least in its, its earlier form. Um, and this this is a way that you know small players can act like big players in the social media. You know, it's kind of kind of a leveling uh, medium. You know, it allows allows people that are creative to do a lot with not necessarily having to have a mega million dollar uh, marketing fund. So it's it's pretty awesome. How's it um, worked out for you so far? You know, it, it's. It, it's still in development, you know. Admittedly, I'm learning every day and uh, really working, uh, working at trying to be more proficient. But um, it's so far very good, actually. We've been heavily involved with the social media stuff since uh, probably mid to late last year. Started put a, putting a push on it, and uh, obviously a lot of other things in the works. And you know, so that's a lot of my direction for the future. It it seems like you know. We started this radio show five years ago, and that's somewhat kind of a social media thing, I guess. And it just seems so overwhelming at times, Bob. You've got the Twitter, you've got the Facebook, you've got the uh, the, the LinkedIn, you've got the the Facebook. I mean, you know, is it is it as overwhelming as it seems, or is it something that you've been able to manage pretty easily? You know, I mean, I guess yes, uh, yes, and no. Um, I, I've been able to manage it pretty well because I come from kind of a electronics, uh, electrical, computer, you know, background. So, so that's maybe a little less daunting for me with the technology end of it, and uh, you know, video production and all that stuff. Um, but no, I, I think it is. It is pretty. Uh, it's a. It's a pretty uh, scary thing for a small business person to try to, you know, foray into that because there's just so many, so many 
things you can get caught up in. You know, I mean, you're, you're running your company, you're doing your day-to-day business, and unless you have a dedicated social media person in your company, it, it's pretty difficult. And I assume you are the dedicated social media person. Yeah, I wear all the hats. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I appreciate you going off on that for a moment because I think it's an important topic and one that I know a lot of our listeners are curious about, and it's great that you're able to give us your experience with it. Now, Let's go back a little bit. You were involved, uh, we talked about being involved in the duck cleaning industry back in the 90s, and I know you still, I don't know if you're still cleaning any duck work or not, but I know you do consulting and indoor environmental professional, indoor environmental consulting work, and that oftentimes includes discussing HVAC cleaning issues. How has your opinion about the HVAC cleaning commonly referred to as duck cleaning industry changed over the years, if at all? Well, I mean, I don't think my opinions ever changed from the day that I first got, well, I got involved in 86, like I said, with, uh, on, a, on the residential and very small commercial side with another firm for about four years. And then when I, when I hung out my shingle in 1990, we jumped right into commercial and started doing healthcare and doing a lot of, uh, really aggressive things, and, and back then it was a very primitive industry. I mean, people were still pretty much all vacuum truck driven. There was Portable equipment wasn't even available in the industry in 1990. We had to build our own stuff. We built our own portable HEPA equipment and designed it. We put our own robot into play. And that was before people had robots and cameras. Um, and you know, we modified a lot of even chimney cleaning equipment, the old uh, British uh, chimney brushes with the rotary things uh, back in the early 90s. Before Again, before these tools were common tools in the industry um so so i guess it's changed to that extent that you know people have gone away from just uh taking a cadillac blower and blowing it into a vent and uh putting a big vacuum truck at the other end i think at least that's changed um they're actually physically going in and cleaning uh but we really got away from the residential and didn't stay focused on that because the re- i think there's two separate industries residential duct cleaning and commercial commercial hvac hygiene are really two separate animals in my opinion you know, I, I'm, that's interesting, and I think that's, I, I kind of look at it the same way, actually. Now, I had heard somewhere along the way, and I don't know whether this was accurate or not, so I'll just ask you, that you were at one point involved with, like, chimney sweep cleaning type activities. Was that accurate? Oh, it's true. Actually, back, um, way back, now, now we're going back, like, uh, Back in 1980, while I was still in college, um, I actually started a chimney sweep business with the old August West uh, dealership thing. So I was like one of the original American chimney sweeps. You know, I think I was like number 900 or something in the country. Wow. So I did start with that, and that, and that gave me a, uh, you know, that was kind of my side job that helped me pay my way through school. But it uh, gave me a perspective on cleaning uh, rectangular things out. <laughs> and, and some of the, and honestly, some of that technology, you know, I think the chimney industry actually did a better job of cleaning out rectangular uh, things than the duct cleaning industry was doing in the 80s, you know, because they were just blowing some air at one end and hoping that big suction at the other end would clean it, and, and when, in fact, you do need some form of mechanical agitation to actually dislodge stuff. So, so I think that's – so I adopted a lot of the British chimney, uh, chimney sweep-type cleaning technologies and modified it early on, you know, back in the 80s. Now, as I understand it, that the chimney sweep – profession is very uh, respected in Europe. You mentioned Britain, and it's actually mm-hmm. required in some places that you have your chimney cleaned every so often because yeah, of, it's required in Germany. Yeah, because of fires, etc. And then, you know, it seems like you've almost come full circle here because the chimney sweeps that I'm aware of, the people that are in that industry, 
and, and the ones that have had the type of training that I think you've mentioned here with the British training, they, they also learned a lot about building science type issues. And it seems like you've come almost full circle in that now you're doing the energy efficiency and those mm-hmm. chimney sweep type guys had to understand, you know, how air infiltrates into buildings, what type of uh, makeup air you needed for combustion, et cetera. Is that accurate to say? You know, you know, I've never actually thought of it that way, but um, yes, Joey just opened another deep uh, corner of my brain now and my uh, soul. Uh, yeah, I guess there is some truth to that. Okay. Because that's true. Over in Europe, they really, uh, you know, it's, it's always been a professional industry, and they've, you know, they're licensed, you know, government controlled and very, very regulated. And yeah, the chimney sweeps are very much, much more than just guys that go around and clean out chimneys. You know, they're, they're building science professionals. Yeah, they're saving lives, basically, you know, yeah, and they're also yeah. building science people. And I, I've always had great respect for that, and I, I don't think people always look at it that way here in the States, and I wish they would. But Interesting. Anyway, um, let's move on. Now, we, we're going back again to, I guess this was the late 90s. EPA apparently did some kind of study on, on duct cleaning, as they call it. I just don't like that term, but we'll we'll use it because that's what's in the document they came out with. Should you have the air ducts in your home cleaned? And I, as I understand it, now we didn't have a chance to talk about this. You were somehow involved with that, or at least very aware of what happened there. No, very much involved with it. Back in the '90s, uh, the early '90s, I was uh, NADCA's government government affairs person, so I was actually the liaison to all the federal agencies for NADCA. Um, and at that point. Prior to that document, should you have your air ducts cleaned, which I think came out in 98, I believe that's when that was released, uh, from 95 through 98, we were involved uh, in something that was called a CRADA. It's a Cooperative Research and Development Agreement with the EPA. So actually, EPA joint ventured with NADCA to do a study. And it was like the first of its kind that EPA had actually gone outside the private sector and worked with them. So I was the uh, project ma- uh, manager on the NADCA side of that. And it was a fairly in-depth uh, research study. It was a pilot study uh, on the effectiveness of air duct cleaning in a residential setting, or HV, H, it was HVA uh, cleaning. You know, they didn't really call it duct cleaning in the study. Okay. And we started out with a pilot thing at Research Triangle Institute where we built the test chamber and did a lot of pre-field work in, in the laboratory and then went out into the field and replicated that nine times. So it was, again, a pilot study, but some real interesting stuff came out in that study. What what type of cleaning were they doing? Was was there portable uh, air filtration? It, it was all portable. Well, okay. it, it was. Let me say, it wasn't all portable. We did. Uh, we used portable HEPA equipment indoors, and we also used. Um, and I'll, I'll throw the name down. Myers, uh, one of their portable vacuums. So it wasn't a truck mount, but it was an outside gas-driven unit with a big bag filter. So it's similar to a truck mount mindset. You know, it was an outside vacuum. Okay. And uh, so we. So we tested, you know, both different ways, and, and to see how it was affecting the indoor environment. The, the big thing was EPA was was concerned, or at least uh, intrigued, about what what would the actual effect of duct cleaning would be for the indoor environment in a home, not just the ductwork itself, but you know, how did it actually change the indoor environmental parameters? And when we're talking, surprising stuff happens. Well, that's what I, I'd like to get into a little bit. When you're talking sure. about indoor environmental parameters, I assume big a big component of that is the particle counts in the Absolutely. in the building at that time were the particle counters as you know as good as they are now and and i know they were more expensive I, at least i believe they were yeah. back then can you tell us a little bit about what happened with sure, that sure yeah and again it was a government study that cost you know uh 
upwards. I, mean, I, I don't even know the actual final dollar cost, but it was you know probably approaching a million dollars on EPA cost on it. It wasn't cheap. And um, so we had very good laser particle uh, detection equipment. It wasn't just handheld units. It was actual uh, big laboratory-type clean room-type setups where we had multiple monitoring points simultaneously. And, um, and again, uh, I think it was Dr. Roy Fortman uh, from Research Triangle Institute, or I can't remember what company he was with at that point, but he ran most of that side of it. And uh, we, so they did pre and post, you know, monitored the, the nine selected test homes prior to any uh, disruption of the, you know, the HVAC systems, and then after, you know, for a period of time after, so we could see what the changes were. And um, it, it was, so it, that, that was, there was also internal, you know, ductwork monitoring done as well. But as far as the actual indoor environment of the home, we found that um, it didn't really change much of the indoor environment. Uh, so, you know, all the big claims that you're changing the, the dust in a house, it's not necessarily true, at least based on that pilot study. How long afterwards did you continue doing particle counts, and did you do maybe like dust wipes or something like that to verify that? There were, there were, as far as dust wipes, there were some done, and I can't really speak to those um, because it's been so long I don't really remember. But I know the particle counts ran for approximately a week after the duct cleaning. Mm-hmm. So it was a week, a week before and a week after. I think it was a two-week interval, and then the cleaning was done in the middle of it. So it was, you know, pretty good trending, and it was outdoor monitoring done as well, monitoring the outdoor particles. Uh, we found it was interesting is with the outdoor vacuum collection equipment, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that, I, again, I think people didn't really understand the, the whole premise. If you suck a bunch of air out of a house in, you know, under the auspices of cleaning ductwork, you're sucking a lot of air out, so air has to go back in the house. You can't suck 20,000 you know, CFM out of a house and not get 20,000 CFM back into the house. Where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Well, interstitial spaces, outdoors, maybe uh, recycling of the stuff that comes out of the bag filter right back through the windows. You know, lots of, lots of very interesting things happening, especially with exterior-mounted equipment, vacuum collection equipment. We found that the uh, airborne dust counts really rocketed indoors during the cleaning process hmm. because a lot of that dust was getting re-entrained and brought back into the house or, you know, through the neighborhood. So that, that wasn't so good. When you were using the portable HEPA-type collection equipment, was it as bad, or it doesn't sound like it was as bad? It, it was different. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a spike in the outdoor counts, you know, and hence coming indoors because that was really contained. But still, the whole nature of actual cleaning, during the process of the cleaning, there's a fairly high spike just by virtue of the fact you're disrupting things, you're moving equipment around, you're doing things that aren't normally occurring know, within the indoor environment. But they typically, those high counts typically leveled off very fast. As soon as the cleaning work was over, they dropped. But what we found is that it pretty much dropped back to the original ambient counts before the cleaning. It didn't really change the indoor dust loads. Interesting. Did it cause you to change anything you were doing at the time with respect to cleaning these systems? Interestingly for me, no, because I had already suspected that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, that's one of the reasons why we really never made a lot of uh, bold claims about the benefits of duct cleaning. Now, I think it's a good, it's a good component in an indoor environmental program, but it's not the end all. I mean, by itself, you don't really, you know, massively affect the indoor environment unless, unless the outlying cases where there's a you know, a significant mold problem in the ductwork. You know, there's there's cases where absolutely it makes a major difference on impact, but I think in, for general speaking in the residential market, it doesn't make that much of a difference as far as indoor air quality. 
does it improve system performance? That's a whole different issue. I believe it does. Okay. And have you seen any good evidence to that effect? I've seen various studies from utilities that have, you know, shown, uh, you know, shown energy uh, savings, and you know, so there, there have I've seen over the years a bunch of different studies showing that from purportedly independent sources on that. So it, it looks like there is some savings, and certainly, you know, if you have a plugged coil, you clean the coil, you get more airflow. I mean, there, there's benefits. I'm not, I'm not bashing duct cleaning. It's just that I think there's a lot of, a lot of ability of companies in that industry to hide what they do because people can't really see it. Mm-hmm. They don't get to see the quality, you know, quality of what's being done necessarily. And I think that's more so in the residential market. As you get into the commercial market, you have a different degree of clients that are a little bit more in tune to the HVAC design and how systems operate, so it's a little bit harder to pull the wool over their eyes. And I guess we should just... I just said that, yeah. <laughs> um, let me do... It also, you know, unfortunately tends to be an area of indoor environmental quality that seems to attract, I don't know, scam artists. I mean, you've got the, you know, $29.99, $39.99, Do you think there's more of that in the HVAC cleaning industry than there is in other types of uh, indoor environmental quality, or is it just more noticeable to people? I think maybe it's more noticeable. I don't know if there's more in that. Um, you know, like in my last week's blog, I, I did that blog on duct cleaning, which, by the way, had like more hits and more comments than I've ever had before in 18 months. So it was interesting. That one seemed to be a, a real uh, jugular issue for some people. But, you know, I put that cut out of an ad, you know, a not that long ago ad of the big dust mite magnified in the ad showing how that, you know, clean your ducts because you have dust mites in them. Yep. It's comical because, of course, they don't really reside there. But, um, so I think there's I think there's more you know oh my God look what's in your ductwork type hysteria but uh, indoor environmental industry in general Joe you've been in it long, you know if not longer at least as long as I have with you know from asbestos right through mold I mean there's scams in everything yeah that's the truth I, I I've got to agree 100 percent with you there now let me ask one more question on that. Uh, the duct cleaning, HVAC cleaning, can you actually sanitize an HVAC system? I see that advertised all the time. I've had people tell me, no, you can't possibly sanitize an HVAC system. I'd, I'd like to get your opinion. Now, I'm going to go back to a Jeff uh, Goldblum quote from uh, the first Jurassic Park. I think the question should be not if you can, but if you should. <laughs> you know? I mean, really, I mean, because that's really what it comes back to. Of course, you, you can, you know, and you can apply more chemicals into an environment. But there's you got There's a risk-benefit that analysis that has to take place anytime you select, you know, a chemical and you're going to bring it into the environment under the guise of improving indoor air quality or indoor environments. You know, and what chemical you're bringing in, how are you going to apply it, what's the potential reaction of occupants, and you need to evaluate all that. And I mean, the average duct system doesn't you know, it doesn't warrant a, you know, any chemical application as far as a biocide, right? And and the word biocide, you know, if you t- break it down, I mean, right? Bio is life side is kill. It's a life killer. So you're putting a chemical in that kills organisms. You know, a safe biocide, in my mind, probably is one that sucks. You know, I mean, really, you know, most of the cold sterilants are the true biocides that, that kill everything. And, you know, so where's the balance point? You know, do you gain anything from putting this chemical in the system? How is it being applied? Are the, are the technicians even qualified or properly licensed to be doing that type of work? You know, that those are other issues. Many states regulate under the pesticide uh, regulations. 
Um, I, I don't, I don't necessarily see a big benefit in using biocides. We shied away from that back in the 90s. Uh, I'm not saying we never use biocides. I mean, if there's a, a, a noted or documented uh, microbial uh, contamination, then yes, it makes that's where it starts to make sense to use it. But just as an add-on, hey, for 20 more dollars, we'll stand as high as your ductwork. Come on, <laughs> crazy. All right, now what not, about? And you can't. This is a fogging issue too. That you're going to take take an atomizer, stick it at one end, and blow it through the whole system and actually coat the whole thing. That's nonsense. Okay. All right. That's kind of where I was headed too. You know, how do you actually get this to, you know, uh, cover and cover uniformly throughout that system? Very, very difficult. But uh, well, here's the problem too: is that again back to residential. Residential duct systems in general are poorly designed, poorly constructed, and very difficult to effectively clean. They just are. If they're just thrown together, you know, half the time panned under uh, floor joists and, you know, on the return side and braces in there. And it's just very difficult to, to get to all points of a residential system. Uh, in some ways, people say, oh, you know, back in the early days, aren't you nervous about working on commercial? I'd rather work on commercial. I have mechanical prints. I've got accessibility. I can stick robots and cameras in there. I can actually see what the heck we're doing. A residential system, you're blind half the time. It's very difficult to do. And you have the money in it. I mean, the, the commercial people know it's going to cost them something. You're not competing against the forty nine ninety nine deals, I don't think. No, no, no. And, and that's the other thing. I mean, you're competing. Just to, you know, economically, we're not doing well on anything in the world. But, but the reality is, yeah, the, the $49, $10 event contractor, what a joke. I mean, come on. You can't. It can't be done. I've it can't got, be done properly. One more before we break for halftime, Bob. This is from uh, my, my buddy Cliff Zlotnick, who unfortunately couldn't make it today. He said, please translate caveat emptor ductus maximus into English for our listeners. <laughs> uh, that was in my blog. You know what it is? It's buyer beware, okay? If you're going to enter into duct cleaning for your residents or even a commercial client, since it's difficult for you to see what they're actually doing, you really need to scrutinize what you're getting, you know, and, and just because they have some acronyms, you know, some initials behind their name doesn't necessarily mean they do a good quality job either. So I haven't seen a certification for integrity or common sense yet. Very good. Well, that's, that's a great way, I think, to go into our halftime. We've got to thank our sponsors. All we're going to do today is thank our sponsors and come right back. We'll uh, put you on mute for just a minute or two here, and we'll be right back with the second half with Bob Crow. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. 
And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with the IAQ man, Bob Krell. Bob, do we have you back? Hey. Great. All right, Bob, 25 years you've been dealing with indoor air quality issues. What do you, you know, over that 25 year period, what have been the biggest changes you've seen and, and the the key issues that you think we're going to continue to be dealing with? <laughs> biggest changes. Not a whole hell of a lot, I'll be honest. I mean, in my opinion, it's like it, it, it surprises me actually in 25 years how little things have changed, to be honest. You know, I mean, I, I don't, I was thinking about that when I got your questions, and it's like, I, I don't really see that. You know, I don't see an awful lot of change other than the fact that maybe um, from the federal government standpoint, there, there seem to be less involved. There seems to be less money dedicated, you know, solely to indoor environments and indoor air quality, and you know, maybe some of the consumer end isn't being covered as well as it used to be. You know, it seems like there were a lot more conferences, a lot more information, a lot more government involvement than there is now. Granted, there's some state regulations going on, or at least potentially, but... I'm really actually surprised. I don't think we've really evolved all that much. Did did you was the mold thing always as big as it is now, or was that something that kind of grew as time went on? And now it seems to be dying off again. Thank goodness. But you know, yeah. yeah you know, you know, it's interesting too because I know that's where we met originally when I was teaching CMRS class back in uh, what 2001, 2000 somewhere around. Yep. yep. Um, you know, I had been involved with mold before mold was a, a catchphrase. You know, we were doing commercial HVAC work for big buildings where they had mold issues. You know, so so we had been not not ever billing it as mold remediation. I think we may have coined that phrase ourselves for a, while, a long time ago, but because um, we didn't want to say abatement, we want to stay away from uh, the asbestos terminology. But um, you know, we were doing it before it was fashionable. You know, back in the early '90s. And, uh, you know, before was, everybody and their brother was doing mold, you know, it seemed like in the early 2000s it went insane and just we, the mold rush, you know, you know, mold rush of 2001. And uh, too much hype, too much scare. I mean, you talk about, you know, potential uh, abuse of the system. I mean, I think there were contractors just abusing the heck out of uh, consumers. 
Yeah, and they were, you know, they caused a big reaction in the insurance industry too. Do you deal much with disaster restoration and water damage restoration issues? Yeah, we ha- we have we have over the years. We've been involved in some major floods and uh, dealing with uh, you know some some big uh, big events where there's uh, you know hundreds of thousands of square foot of uh, building involved and that sort of thing. Um, so I've had the opportunity to to work with that and. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. It doesn't. The larger jobs don't seem to be any different. It just seems like there's just you know more units involved. You know, it's the same. It's all the same. It comes down to the same premise. I mean, if the building gets wet and there's a mold problem, you got to get to the source of why it got wet. You need to fix that. You need to clean it up, and uh, you move on. It's like a series of small jobs almost. It, it really is. Yeah, and, and that's true with commercial duct cleaning the same way. I mean, it's really a lot of components just being replicated and moving down the line to the next section. Now you have, I, Cliff put this question together too. I think he picked it up from one of your blogs. It was, um, can you recommend some simple steps to fix a damp crawl space? I guess before we go there, do you have a lot of crawl spaces in the Syracuse area? Well, um, yeah, actually we do. Um, we have a lot of them. Almost every public school seems to have them. Anything that was created, uh, any schools built prior to the 80s up in New York State seem to have massive crawl spaces. And uh, a lot of residents, you know, will have a lot of residences will have a, uh, you know, an addition that's a crawl space. You, most homes aren't built over crawl spaces here, like in the Carolinas. You know, it's not as common as it is down there. More basements. Mm-hmm. Even as close as More you are, are you fairly close to the lakes up there? Uh, we are, yeah. I'm actually uh, to to uh, Lake Ontario. That's uh, about 40 minutes from me. So, yeah, we're, we're real close to the lake. Okay. I didn't know if maybe your water table was higher and you had more crawl space, but it sounds like you have a lot of basements. Well, we we do have a, we have a lot of homes around lake fronts, but there's some smaller lakes in the Finger Lakes that are, you know, built around those areas, low-lying uh, areas. But builders here are crazy. They just build uh, finished basements in those environments anyway and hope for the best. <laughs> well, what do you, what kind of tips? work out well for <laughs> Yeah, how's that working for you? Um, <laughs> what about uh, some tips for crawl spaces? I think you must have a couple simple tips that Cliff was trying to get to. Oh, sure. And especially, like, let's talk residential. I mean, the biggest thing is if you have open soil or open gravel, um, a lot of moisture comes through that. I mean, just no matter where you're built, I don't care what your topography is, you're going to have moisture coming up from the ground uh, in addition to potential soil gas. You know, up here we're high radon level uh, areas, so, you know, we have those issues as well. So putting some form of a liner, a continuous liner across the crawl space um, is a really good idea. You know, a heavy poly liner, you would fix it to the foundation, and you basically, you know, it's like a reverse swimming pool. You basically cover the ground underneath and uh, stop a lot of the soil gas and moisture from coming up. And, and that's really first and foremost. And I, I not unlike Joe Stebrick, I'm a big uh, advocate of the uh, semi-conditioned or conditioned crawl space in, in this environment for residences. So it's, it's, I like to see a liner cover the dirt, you know, and actually partially condition or condition that space and bring it into the building envelope. Got it. Uh, I think you do better. You, you, at that point, you cut off the moisture, and from an energy standpoint, it's better, too. So not, I mean, that's pretty much the way I think uh, most of the current thinking is on, you know, building science issues. So I just wanted yeah, to make building sure. Building codes still have, have vented crawl spaces, though, up here. They still that, call for vents in the crawl spaces. Nonsense. Yeah, that's, that's a real problem, isn't it? I, I think it's slowly changing, though, around the country. We'll see uh, if that, hopefully that will slowly get fixed. But uh, it's amazing. Hey, there's another 
question I think he picked up from blog, and I know I've seen you write on this, and it's a question that comes up a lot when it, with respect to real estate transactions and mold. What are your recommendations uh, for people with a mold problem and say an attic and a real estate transaction home inspector picks up on it? What do you suggest they do? Uh, yeah, and, and we're seeing more and more of that too. It's like it, it get probably a call a day on that at least. Um, it seems like home inspectors are looking for it more because it seems like the lenders are more gun shy of uh, lending on a property with any mold in it. And, and that's the I, I really have mixed emotions on that, you know, um, because the attic for the most part, unless it's a, a living space attic or a walk up attic um, or a storage space, you know, let's say the typical attic that it just has a scuttle hatch somewhere and people don't use it for anything. Um, it's fairly disconnected from the living space. So, you know, what the real environmental impact to the occupants is probably minimal, you know, what's going on up there. Um, So is it a big IAQ problem? No, but it seems to be a big red flag for the real estate problem, uh, you know, for transactions, and it really reduces the value of the property. So you got to deal with it. But the the problem is I think most sellers now, you know, they get – Slammed with you know another expense trying to sell their property when the home inspector for the buyer finds the mold, you know, what do they do? Well, they're looking at a quick band-aid approach to making the mold go away, and I think both sides don't really look at the underlying problem. That's a symptom. If there's mold in an attic on the underside of a roof. It's a symptom of a building performance problem that's going on. There's probably either you know a lack of uh, proper ventilation, although that's not the big one in my opinion. Um, or some form of leakage from the condition space up there where you're, you're transmitting moist air up into the attic space and maybe a combination of, uh, you know, bad insulation. And you put all that together, and so there, there's an underlying cause of that, you know, properly vented uh, bath fans, you know, that's a big culprit too. Mm-hmm. And you put all those things together, and they just want to treat the mold, but they don't necessarily want to correct the underlying problem, and the mold will be back you know, no matter what you do if you don't correct the moisture problem, you know. And that's fascinating that they are, you know, it's like we've got to sell it. We've got a closing on a certain date. This mold's got to be gone. And yeah, what can you spray on it so we can move on and give us a letter saying it's all fixed? Yep. I mean, that's, I get that question every day. It's a lot of, I mean, it's amazing that neither side really seems to get it yet that there's something else going on here, you know, that um, you've hey, got. We can always bring ozone uh, generators into the attic. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I almost asked you about ozone. Um, I would imagine being around 25 years, you used ozone at some point in time, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, honestly, yep. no, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. I gotta be telling you, I mean, I know in the fire restoration industry, it, it has its applications for knocking down odor and to, you know, in the hospitality industry for tobacco smoke odor. I get that. And it does work in unoccupied spaces. Not, not a bad idea. But, you know, I'm going to say, give my 30 seconds here, Jeff. Please. Uh, you know, the whole, the whole premise of we're going to bring this ozone generator and stick it on the nightstand of a six-year-old asthmatic child and improve their indoor environment is garbage. Mm. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, you know, I just, no, it's junk science. It doesn't, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And I know you get all companies with testimonials by the millions of how they've been improved with it. But I'm, I'm sorry. You're taking a highly react, you know, react, uh, reactive oxidizer you're throwing it in the environment and it doesn't just create water and you know and you know and some carbon dioxide it just, that's not the one it, it, everything can't get broken down into water and carbon dioxide sorry 
The one I saw recently, I just I had to just bite my tongue because I had dealt with this a couple times with this gentleman. I, I don't want to deal with it again. Is that somehow miraculously they had fixed a chemical dumping in a HVAC system through ozone, and that um, somehow miraculously all the chemicals that had been dumped in for cleaning the biocides, whatever it was, I don't even know what chemical it was, had turned into water and and. CO2, you know, so. Yeah, apparently, apparently it, it, it does more than we thought, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, unfortunately, when you have, you know, the thing is, if you go back to the chemistry of it, if you, if you take a, a compound and you react it with ozone, you create new compounds. I'm sorry. Sometimes it is water. Some, you know, sometimes it's oxygen and carbon yep. dioxide. Yep. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's worse things than you started with. I'm sorry. Absolutely. You know, if you look at the, the molecular science, it, you know, I mean, it's not necessarily a good thing. And, you know, the, the guys that are purportingly killing mold with ozone, you gotta have some pretty uh, ozone will kill mold. I'm not debating that. You put it in a stainless steel chamber, you can kill anything in a chamber with ozone. But you know, in the real world, you're also breaking down plastics. You're break. You're killing the the pet goldfish, you're killing the dogs. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like you know the kids. Kids can't breathe. Their eyes are. I mean, the rubber gaskets start to get weakened. And yeah, you break on your hard drives uh, fail. I mean, come uh, on. It's unbelievable. I can't believe it's still being. Sold as a miracle I, I cure. Was, I was amazed at how much it's come up on the, uh, you know, on the discussion groups on LinkedIn in the last couple of weeks since I, it just sort of appeared, and it just, it's really. Uh, I was making this argument years ago, like 15 years ago, and I'm, I'm shocked that it's rearing its ugly head again. Oh uh, yeah, uh, well, I think part of the thing, I, I, I actually think it's a good thing, in that these guys who were doing that we're never really exposed to other professionals until this, you know, LinkedIn stuff and this and that started. And most of them, once they come on there and realize, Oh geez, you know, maybe I'll look at this a little more closely. They do that and they change their ways, but there are a few that are just so cemented in their ways that nothing is going to change their mind. And yeah, and I will say most of the people I've met that are really advocating this, they're doing it. Most of them, in my opinion, at least the ones I've met, seem to be doing it, you know, with the sense of that they're doing a good thing. They really are misinformed. Yes. It's not that they're necessarily criminal minds scheming on how they're going to screw the consumers. I, I think they're actually, they're thinking that what they're doing is valid. And, you know, it's like when somebody spends a bunch of money on an item, they want it to work. You know, the last thing you want to do is feel that you got ripped off and you, you, you bought something that doesn't work. So you're, you're going to have those testimonials and that placebo effect of, yeah, it's working. Yep. You know, and yep. it's not really working. And you don't want to believe that for the last 10 years you've been selling people things that are actually possibly harming them instead of helping them. So you just kind of continue to believe the, the things that uh, got you there in the first place. Yeah, that's uh, the definition of uh, insanity. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right, let's move on here. When renovating an office space, uh, well, before we did that, when there was apparently something about designing and building a new home, what types of indoor air quality considerations do you recommend? Oh, well, uh, a couple things. The big, the big thing. What you want to do from you got to you got to think energy and indoor air quality together. You can't you can't separate that anymore with the cost of uh, fossil fuels and heating and cooling and stuff. So you really want to build your your cube that you live in as tight and sealed and insulated from the outdoors as possible. And really, in the best scenario, is you mechanically ventilate it, and so you you condition the air and control the air infiltration, you know, through mechanical means as opposed to air leaking through cracks and crevices and crawl spaces and attics and things to get your makeup there that way. So uh, heat recovery ventilators, uh, energy recovery ventilators, these are great things to incorporate 
where you can actually bring in a metered amount of fresh air into a, a home. Wonderful. You know, so you seal the house up and then mechanically ventilate it, I think, is you know, good insulation practices. And first and foremost, really select products that are going into the home based on their indoor air quality constraints. In other words, don't have things that heavily off-gas. There's zero VOC paints now. There's low or zero VOC adhesives and finishes, carpets. You know, across the board, you can get a lot of products that don't off-gas a lot and bring them in. And that's, that's what you should build with and, and mechanically ventilate. And you can make an indoor environment just really good right out of the blocks. You know, it's, it's amazing to me that that still 25 years later, we were saying that 25 years ago, and the products are available now, but people still fail to use them. Build it tight. Really interesting. Build tight, ventilate right. Um, yeah. I got a text question from a listener. Uh, Bob, what are your thoughts on mold dogs? Oh, who's doing that? You know what, <laughs> honestly? Um, you know, I guess, you know, and this is like going back to uh, 2004 at the uh, ACGIH conference when I had the picture of my own dog sniffing me from behind. And then, you know, it, it, no, it's, oh, I'm going to get in trouble no matter how I say this. All right. I, I, can, can a dog be trained to sense mold? Probably. I, I believe that. They're very sensitive, you know, and you can probably teach a dog to sniff it out. Um, me personally... Well, first of all, I wouldn't do that to my dogs. I wear a respirator when I'm in those environments, so I can't imagine how great that is for their respiratory system. I'm a dog lover. Uh, but beyond that, until I can teach the dog to actually write the damn report after we're done with it, it's not a lot of value to me. You know, I mean, it's a diagnostic tool. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a, you know, P.T. Barnum. I don't know. I mean, I think you could probably train dogs to do it. And, I, you know, I hear that some people do wonderful things with that. I hear people do wonderful things with ozone, too. I hear you. I hear you. Val? I oh, don't. Yeah, we're going to get some comments. Oh, I got a couple already here. We'll, we'll let you know what they are later. <laughs> oh, boy. Val, no, we've got no, I'm, I'm not bashing them. And I, like I said in 2004, and they're still around, so it tells me that there is some validity to it, at least some, because if something can handle ridicule for a period of time in an industry you know, and get blown apart and still sustain and be there, to some extent there's probably some basis for why it's there okay like but you did say it's a tool in the toolbox you know and yeah if, but it's not the end all thing i mean my dog can't write the report my dog can't interpret what's going on under then, any circumstances and can they walk through a condition to uncontained work area and alert on a shower curtain yeah i guess they can <laughs> i just got a text from mr lapater down there in florida john good to have you with us let's get uh, val bender in here with a question yeah i have a question and uh kind of in honor of Mother's Day being next week. What would you say the connection is between IAQ and heart health? And I think we're, you're maybe referring to the Environmental Perspectives article that came out recently. Perhaps yes. Perhaps what the basis of that is. Yes. I don't know if it has anything to do with Mother's Day, but that's okay. <laughs> um, in honor of Mother's Day. And, and I believe the base, most of that article was talking about uh, things that are like the ultrafine particles, generators of that, like candle, you know, burning scented candles, uh, using fragrances. That put ultrafines up in the air. Yep. I think there's a lot of unknown and a lot of potentially hazardous uh, human exposure to ultrafine particles that we haven't even really broached on yet in this industry. Uh, we did a couple of studies a, a few years back uh, on unvented gas appliances, on unvented fireplace logs. That the whole family was getting really ill in this home. And again, ultrafine particle counts were just off the Richter scale when they'd run this equipment, mm -hmm. you know, running these unvented appliances. So I think there's and it, this was a very ill family at the end of it. Um, so I've, I've, 
seen that more than once. And so I, th- I think indoor air quality, certainly, you know, there are links to heart issues. Absolutely, with the PM 2.5 particles and just, I mean, we, we live in an area, Bob, in, in Pittsburgh, where we have some of the highest um, heart problems in the country and and we also live in an area where there's a lot of small particulate matter generated by all number of different sources it's got better when since the steel mills closed but there's no mm-hmm. question in this area you have a much higher problem uh, cardiac problems than than in many other parts of the country um, well, the ultrafines are horrifying too because they really we don't have the mechanisms within our body to protect ourselves ultrafines fire right on through our lung tissue and right into our bloodstream Absolutely. We don't have a defense mechanism for those. And I know we'll have Dr. Wow on in a moment. He'll have I know he'll have a comment on that. I've got another text. I might as well go with these texts. Um, who are your top five influential people in the IAQ industry right now? My opinion? Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's a tough one. Isn't you know, it? I, that's why I saw so, it. I was like, thank so you, easy, Susan. Like, that would have been so easy 10 years ago. I could have just re- you know, listed them right off. I don't know, Joe. I mean, I mean, hey, you're one of them. You should a radio show. Um, you know, I, I mean, Glenn Feldman's got to be one of them just because he, you know, owns the industry and he has publications and he's all over the place, so he's got to be one of them. Okay. Um, I don't, you know, I, there's no there's no big government players anymore. You know, the Bob Axelrads and the John Germans, where are they? You know, I mean, it's unfortunate. Yeah. We used to have yeah. the big federal advocates that just aren't there anymore. That's a great uh, question. Well, yeah, but I don't have an answer. <laughs> Think about it a little bit. Maybe when we go to the roundup, you can come up with a few more. Thanks, Susan. We appreciate that. You stumped Bob for a moment here. Not, not for long, though. We'll get right back with it. All right, let's go to um, – we talked a little – I think carbon monoxide uh, is certainly a big issue. I'm going to – and you talked about the unvented fireplaces. Let's, let's go to this one, um, radon. Uh, what's your thoughts on radon issues? Well, I mean, radon, you know, I live, I live in an area personally in, in the central New York area. It's pretty high for radon. Um, we're finding when we go out and test, probably one in two homes have elevated radon levels above the uh, four picocuri. So it's uh, not uncommon, in, in, at least in my, you know, my locale. Um, obviously, it's been linked, you know, to being the second leading cause of lung cancer. Um, the United States has always been a little bit forward on this, or at least has been for a while. But now the EU is picking up on our, you know, our levels. Canada is lowering their uh, minimum action level. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's definitely, uh, it, it's certainly something that has a long latency period and it's not, a, you know, not something that anybody can immediately detect. But, you know, once you're exposed for, you know, 20, 30 years, it does raise your incidence of lung cancer. So it's, it's also something that can be corrected, easily tested, easily corrected, um, so, you know, out of all the indoor environmental issues that at least I personally deal with, it's one of the more straightforward ones to deal with. Yeah, it's a good point, too. All right, let me get one more quick one in, then we're running out of time. I want to get Dr. Wow in here for the roundup. Um, do you recommend the installation of UV lights in HVAC plenums and ductwork? Okay. Oh, that's a, that's a two-phase question. Okay. okay. All right. In, HV, in, in, in plenums, like around coils and drain pans, uh, UVC has definitely been uh, shown to reduce microbial growth, and it does well. I mean, if any place that that, if the bulbs are functioning properly and they're radiating on a surface, they tend to kill microorganisms. They work real well. Now, in the ductwork, that's a different story in my opinion, okay, because now we're looking at air that's moving at 500 feet per minute, typically, past that bulb. So how many bulbs do you have in the array? 
you know, what is the likelihood that you're going to, you know, radiate sufficiently with a sufficient contact time uh, organisms such as mold spores, which take quite a bit of radiation to kill. You know, as you're flying by at 500 feet per minute, I, I question that. You know, and the, the argument that is made, again, when they're testing in chambers and they have a recycle, you know, well, that particle goes by enough times, eventually it's fried. But that's like the, you know, the single bullet theory, theory with Kennedy. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, maybe. But, I mean, does that mold spore get back through that bulb enough times to get killed, or does it deposit in somewhere else? I, so I think, I think there's a lot of overselling in that, in my opinion, with the UVC, you know, saying that it purifies the air and purifies, purifies the whole environment. I, I think they're very effective if, if used for what they can do. You know, sterilizing surfaces, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's go to roundup here, Val. We're gonna. What we do is we'll round up. We'll have Doctor Wild come in. He'll have a few comments. Then we'll ask one last question and we'll wrap it up, Bob. Alrighty. Thank you. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. All right, all right. Dr. Wow, it got shut off on us. Oh, yeah, give me that. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Good afternoon, Dietrich. How are you? That's fine, Joe. Good, Good afternoon. I still like that paper over the top. <laughs> I know you've got a couple comments. Uh, anyway, um, Congratulations to Bob. Yeah, we didn't we didn't invent the newest, most wonderful digital stuff in the world, but Bob touched on a lot of things that seems to get at times forgotten. Uh, we talked about common sense today, and I think that is very good. Uh, I made a couple of notes over here. Uh, congratulations, Andy. Andy did it again. <laughs> I don't know how. Well, he is on the button in a hurry. Yeah, he got I beat this you, week. Yeah. I, I guess you win when you are listening to it live. That's right. That's right. He, uh, he Bob got beat. mentioned something, and I certainly do appreciate that. And he said, look, in the old days, I couldn't go out and buy a black box that did quote everything, which it doesn't. We know that. Uh, he had to make his own equipment. When I was studying particulate matter, and I get to that in a second, uh, particles in the air, and so we had to make our own equipment. We had to calibrate microscopes. I, there wasn't a black box over there, and Joe knows the story. You know, I bought a uh, particle counter. This is in 1968 or thereabouts. You know, that thing cost three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Wow. It is just unbelievable. Um, another thing, and Bob mentioned that, and I know I touched on it yeah, a year or two or three years ago, on the chimney sweeps. We think this is a dirty guy who doesn't know what the hell he is doing. In Europe, it is a learned profession. There are professionals who go around with a top hat, by the way, and they are home inspectors. I remember 
I think once in a year we had to get our chimney uh, swept. And when he was in over there, he looked around in the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Uh, well, we didn't have air conditioning in Germany at that time, and we didn't need it. <laughs> it never got that warm. But um, they were home inspectors. They told you, I said, hey, you got to watch this and that and the other. So they are not just dirty guys with uh, dirty hands. No, not at all. Uh, Bob mentioned, I just read this on that radon stuff. Radon appears to be, I don't know how they do the studies, whether they established a uh, dose-response curve, but I read not too long ago that we are still killing some 20,000 people in the United States due to the inhalation of radon. I may be inhaling, I know I'm inhaling radon right now. There's got to be a little bit around in my house. Uh, terrific. Uh, the other one is, and he mentioned it, that fine particles. I said it once, I, uh, or inhalational uh, uh, particles, small particles, which can be inhaled and deposited in the human lung, not in the lung or from us. And I don't know anything about the inhalation of small particles in a whale, but I know it in the mouth and in the humans. Uh, there is, that is interesting. I said it once, I said it twice. Years ago, my uh, uh, teachers, uh, Ted Hatch and Paul Gross, um, uh, studied it, and it's in the book, uh, um, Inhalation and Deposition of uh, Particles in the Human Lung. I still say it... Uh, Particles 10 micrometers or less are inhalable and depositable, if that, if that is an English word, or can be deposited in the human lung. Now, does a 10 micron particle have a good chance of making it all the way down to the uh, alveoli? No, it does not. But it will be deposited in the lung. Do smaller particles make it deeper down there? Yes, of course that has something to do uh, with the size and the size of the pipes which bring us all the way down to the alveoli. Yes, they can be, and uh, uh, no doubt about it, cigarette smoke gets deeper into the lung than 10 micrometer particles. But I have seen in lung slides uh, uh, 10 micrometer particles in the in the 15th or 16th or 17th generation of the human lung. The first generation is the trachea, then there are the major bronchi, that is uh, the second generation, and then it goes back uh, down, 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 down. Anybody who comes to our class has an old cast that I made <laughs> 30 years ago of the human lung. So I think we touched on a bunch of things. Did we have a, um, um, a trivia question today? We did, and we got an answer. Oh, what was the question? It I didn't... was uh, galvanizing. Oh, Luigi yeah, Galvani. Zinc, right? It's correct. That's correct. John Lapotere got that one. So. Yeah, I remember that from years ago. Yep. But if, um, if we need one for next week and the week there, oh, next week I will be in Mexico. But I will try to get via my computer onto 
uh, what is that, Skype, right? Yes, sir. And I call in, maybe I can monitor it from down there while I'm having a cerveza de Mexico. Theater, <laughs> <laughs> we always uh, enjoy so, having you. Well, I, I'm, I, I went past all my... Oh, that UV, I think Bob said it again. It's perfect what he said. Uh, did I use UV in my uh, chemical or in my uh, biological uh, laboratory at university? Yes, I did. There were three of them in my hood, and they were there 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Uh, did they do what they were supposed to do? Absolutely. If you have a, 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 a mold spore flying past the UV light, good luck. <laughs> yeah, if that would work, then no mold spores could survive the outdoors because there's a lot of UV light all over the place. And miraculously, they don't get killed by the UV light. Isn't that nice? <laughs> or uh, uh, isn't that good? Anyway, Bob, hey, thanks a lot. I certainly uh, enjoyed listening to you. Well, thank you. And I think we made, uh, uh, you made a couple of points. Uh, uh, we have to... How should I say? We have to learn to appreciate that <laughs> of what was happening in the old days, what we are doing, and where we are today, and where we want to go. Thank you, Dieter. As always, Val, I know you had a question for Bob. Uh, yeah, as someone who's been kind of diving into social media, um, what marketing suggestions might you have for people trying to get the word out for their IAQ business? Well, I mean, again, it depends what your goal is. You need to, you know, try to isolate where you're most, you know, likely to uh, find your type of client. So if if it's in a residential uh, setting that you're trying to market to, then maybe Facebook uh, is one of the more powerful ones for you. Um, Certainly Twitter is still a big player, even though a lot of people don't appreciate that. I think it is a lot more more activity involved with Twitter to be effective with it. Um, I think when you're going more for the professional commercial side, then LinkedIn becomes a much more powerful engine. You know, um, and the big thing is, is like if you're going to jump into social media, you can't jump in. It's like walking into a room where you're new at a party and you start screaming, announcing your name and what you're about. <laughs> people, people are offended by that, and I've never, it never ceases to amaze me how people will join my LinkedIn group, and the first thing they do is start throwing advertisements out there. They're they're in the group for one day, and the, they start they start by being rude. And and that's just a really bad idea. You need to you need to work you in and earn your status in the social media, you know, whatever one you're working in, and um, you know, contribute contribute good information. I, I think if you put good information out there, people will seek you out. That's a great great uh, piece of advice, Bob. Bob, before we go, we always like to ask uh, before we leave: Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything we missed, or just anything you'd like to add for our listeners? Um, well, you know, no, I, I don't have anything major right now. I mean, I, we're working uh, working on a lot of really exciting stuff, and you know, in the social media uh, arena too, coming up shortly. So I guess best thing would be just to stay tuned. Um, you can definitely follow me on Twitter at uh, IAQ Man. Really easy to hook up on that, and uh, LinkedIn. Um, you know, it's just Bob Krell at LinkedIn and Facebook. I also have an IAQ Man uh, page there too. So it's uh, and uh, you can hook up to the blog stuff. So. Always looking for more comment, more ideas, and things to write about and things to uh, blab about. And you got IAQ.net, correct? 
yeah, that 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 would be my uh, corporate site. IQ.net is uh, kind of like a center point. If you Got can go it. there, you can find everything. Well, Bob, I, again, I want to thank you for joining us. It, uh, I really should have had you on long ago, but at least we, we got you this week, and we appreciate I you appreciate joining it. us. Well, thanks very much. It was a pleasure, and, uh, you know, I would definitely uh, entertain coming back again. We'll Joe. get you so back. Always fun to speak with you. Absolutely. Absolutely, Bob. We'd love to get you back. All right. All righty. Thanks. Uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guest this week, the IAQ man, Bob Krell. Been uh, it's great that we got Bob in here, Val. It was uh, a long time in coming, and I finally was able to uh, get together with Bob and brought him in. It was a great show. I also want to make sure I thank Ms. Bender, Valerie, for assisting <laughs> at no the worries. controls today. <laughs> nice job. Uh, the Z-Man will be back in his seat next week. We've got Mickey Lee coming in. Mickey's uh, passed with uh, was with Munters now kind of retired. He's going to join us. We're going to talk about some of the controversial issues in uh, water damage restoration, you know, um, what what actually causes drying to occur, uh, does air hold water, things of that nature. So we'll, we'll talk about those kind of things. And uh, we look forward to having Mickey Lee as next week's guest. But uh, also before we go, I want to thank our most important people. That's our growing group of loyal listeners. Thank you all. Come back next week for the next episode of IAQ Radio. has been another IAQ Radio production.